All right, we're going to be looking. In fact, if you're not opening your Bibles to Mark 13, I encourage you to, to open your Bibles there because we are going to look at some words of Jesus concerning the last days. So you might say these are some words that have to do with, with prophecy. A lot of times when you start to go there and, and talk about future events and prophecy, there's a, a lot of times a great big disconnect between what the Bible says on that subject about the future and living our lives today. You know, those things are interesting, but one of the challenges is, well, what's that got to do with, with my situation today? I, I thought about that and a, a little cartoon came to mind about a phone conversation between a man and his pastor. He's saying to the pastor, my wife just left me, I lost my job, I need surgery, and my spirits have hit bottom. Pastor, you got to help me. What's the difference between pre, post, and amillennialism? <laughs> Isn't that about right? That's believable. Yeah, I really, I need some help. So sort out some of these things to do with prophecy. Well, okay, that's, that's sometimes how we look at it. Seriously, there's a lot of talk these days about the end times and, of course, a lot of media attention on the year 2012. We're getting dangerously close to that. And I guess a part of that has something to do with an ancient Mayan calendar. And apparently it ends, their, their calendar from years ago ends on December the 12th, 2012. Uh, I guess there's some debate whether it's December the 12th or December the 21st, but hey, what's a few days when you're talking about the end of the world? But uh, nevertheless, uh, a lot of attention on that. Is the world going to end in 2012? I, I found that there may be a very simple explanation. And that is, when they made their calendar, they simply ran out of room on the calendar and decided, let's quit on December the 12th, 2012. Probably figuring the world was going to end long before that anyway. That's a safe date to put out there. So anyway, that, uh, that may be the, the final explanation that you need to have. What is the world going to end in 2012? Just an arbitrary date, so what's the big deal? But much more important to us, and much more seriously is a comment made by Jesus that has intrigued people for centuries. It's found in Mark chapter 13, verse 30. One of these I tell you the truth statements, we're spending the next few weeks looking at some of those outstanding statements of Jesus that he prefaced with the phrase, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so he, he's made this statement about a, a particular generation that will not pass away that sees certain things come about. And so he seems to be talking about the end of the world or the end of the age. And so if there is going to be such a thing, and it seems like the Bible says a great deal about the fact there will be an end of this age, then it only makes sense there's going to be a last generation. Out of necessity, there has to be a group of people that will see all of that come to pass. And so, really, I think every generation that has ever read these words of Jesus for the last couple thousand years has wanted to be that generation, and we are no different. We'd like to think that we are the generation that will see those things he was talking about, and so we'll be that generation that will greet Christ as he comes back, the generation that doesn't see death but gets transformed into immortality. We also believe uh, that there's that possibility we can be those people. Now, if we're going to understand this one little verse that we've looked at, we need to look at several other verses surrounding it in Mark chapter 13. I'd like to back up to verse 24. 
and look at verses 24 down to 37 and notice in the context of what Jesus is saying. He says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers that are, or, that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest ends of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigned to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. For what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So these words of Jesus about that generation that will not pass away, that will see these things take place, we find some answers as we look into these verses. Verse 24 he started the section by saying, in those days after that tribulation. The rest of the chapter previous has talked about that time, talked about the tribulation that is to come. And so he's talking about something that's going to happen in those days after those things have taken place. He said there's going to be cosmic signs, signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And he said immediately after that, you're going to see Jesus himself returning. And as verse 27 says, that he will send out his angels and he will gather up the elect. He will gather those that belong to Christ that is coming. We find in passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 that the dead in Christ are going to rise up first and be gathered. And then we who are alive will meet them together in the air as the Lord Jesus Christ is on his way back to earth. And from there he talks, it gives us a little parable about a fig tree in verse 28. And there seems to be a very, very basic lesson in that parable. And that is that following the tribulation of those days that he described, following the cosmic signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars that are a clear indication of the return of Christ, really the fig tree is an example because when you see it put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. When you see these signs, Jesus says, that I've just described for you, you know that my coming is very near. And indeed, that generation that sees those things will not pass away until they come to their fulfillment. Verse 32, a very, very important teaching that we've just read because he says no one knows the time when that's going to happen. You can look at the fig tree and get an idea about the signs of the times but don't make the mistake so many people have made saying, this is the date when Jesus is going to come back because I've sat down, I'm a good student of prophecy, I've done all the math and I've figured it out. This is the date when Jesus is going to come back. 
don't do it like so many people have done over the years. Since we don't know the day and the time, he says three different times, and notice this because this is so important, he says, keep on the alert, verse 33. Verse 35, therefore, be on the alert. And finally, verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, this is all inclusive, be on the alert. Three different times he said the same thing for emphasis. It's got to be pretty important for us. You know, there have been those people who have thought about the parable of the, of the fig tree, and they've decided that that somehow represents Israel, and so that represents the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And uh, if you know anything of history, you know that that took place in the year 1948. If you study the Bible and try to come to terms with what is a generation, it pretty clearly is 40 years. So if you're any good at math, you can figure that out pretty quickly. 1988, based on that, should have been the year. I was around in 1988. I don't remember it happening. The fact that we're all here, I sure hope it didn't happen then because we got left behind most definitely. We got left out, not just left behind, we got left out. So, if you want to go with that, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and I've had a lot of trouble with that. Is that what Jesus meant by the generation that sees that happen, that it will not pass away? The generation that was around in 1948 to see Israel reborn as a nation, they're not going to pass away until it's fulfilled and Christ comes back. A lot of people have died during that time. It would seem like that's not the case. I believe really what Jesus is talking about, back to, to verse 24, in those days after that tribulation, the people that are around, to see those things take place, to see the, the signs in the sun, moon, and stars, it's going to be just that quick. That generation certainly is not going to pass away until they see the return of Christ because as he says, they're right at the door. His return is right at the door. There's a parallel account in Luke chapter 21. I thought it might be good just to read these few verses, verses 25 to 32. A little bit different take on these events, but some interesting insight for you to consider. There will be signs in sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Again, familiar words, a slight different emphasis on those things that we've just read about. But again, I want to come back to the statement Jesus clearly has made multiple times. In fact, three different times. Keep on the alert. Be on the alert. What I say to one, I say to all, be on the alert. So whether you understand much about Jesus' words in Bible prophecy or anything else about Bible prophecy, those words are the easiest of all to understand and apparently, again, are the most important because he said them three times. Be on the alert. So what do you need to know about future events? Apparently, one thing we need to know is be on the alert. Constantly be on the alert. So we understand that, but I wonder, do we really understand exactly what it means to be on the alert? 
If you take that literally, you don't sleep at night, I guess. You know, and we're not going to last too long if we don't do that. So I wonder, does be on the alert? Your eyes are constantly open. You never take a nap. You never fall asleep. What exactly does he mean when he says, be on the alert? number of other verses that give us some insight into what it means to be on the alert. I'm going to just kind of rapidly go through several. You can listen to these things and consider what's being said about being on the alert. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, two verses, verses 13 and 14. The Apostle Paul says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I guess I had never really noticed that in there before, but I thought, this is a good thing to share on Father's Day. Act like men. Be strong. Be on the alert. Stand firm in your faith. So be men. Be women. I guess it fits for the women too. But bottom line is, if we're going to be on the alert, he says be firm in the faith. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. Again, Paul is writing and he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, notice, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, he says, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so here he's talking about spiritual warfare in that particular chapter that those verses come from and that we ought to be on the alert, that we ought to have spiritual armor on, and in particular, we ought to be alert through the practice of prayer. And so he brings prayer in very closely with being on the alert. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, he says, Devote yourself to prayer, notice, keeping alert in it, with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought, that it may be clear in the way that I ought to speak. Again, he talks about being alert, connected with thankful prayer, and especially praying for the advancement of the gospel. Twice here, Paul has says, pray for me that I get the word of God out, that I speak the gospel clearly to others. I was thinking of a verse that I keep on my daily prayer list out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. I think it's an excellent prayer for us to be praying, and that is, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. That is an ongoing prayer for me, is uh, praying that, that the word of God will indeed spread rapidly and be glorified by others. I think that we all want that, and we, we need to want that for the gospel to go forward, even as Paul wanted that as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Our Wednesday night group has been studying First and Second Thessalonians. It's all about the return of Christ and how do we live in response to that. Again, here's one of those things. We are on the alert if we expect Christ to come back. And in particular, we are on the alert through the practice of prayer. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 it says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. There's that phrase again. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And so we are on the alert because we face a strong enemy. 
And so we need to be ready because that enemy would like to devour us like a roaring lion, but we resist him. We stand up to him. We remain firm in our faith, a phrase that we looked at a few moments ago, and we recognize that brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world endure that same experience. So those are all just some verses that give us some insight into being on the alert. And so again, if we are to be on the alert, and Jesus said it three different times, how exactly are we to be on the alert? I think one thing that stands out very clearly, and that is through prayer and through standing firm in our faith. I think there's a very definite connection, especially between prayer and being on the alert. It takes me to something that's been a great deal on my mind here recently, and that is the subject of personal worship. Personal worship is simply the discipline of each one of us as individuals for Bible reading and study, for a personal communion with our Father through the practice of prayer. And I guess I've lately sensed the Lord impressing that upon me to share that with you, how vitally important that practice really is. And especially as we think about this subject today, about being on the alert as we wait for the return of Christ. How exactly are we to be alert and ready for the return of Christ, I believe it must center on this discipline of personal worship. In fact, I will dare to say that it is not possible to be alert in the sense of what Jesus meant in these words without personal time of solitude and worship. That is something to just absolutely front and center if we are to be on the alert. And when I say personal worship, that means something that every one of us as individuals must do. No one can do it on behalf of another individual. In saying that, the external things that we do, like we are doing this morning, are important. But the external things are no substitute for personal worship. It is good to come together as the family of God for worship and fellowship and study. It is good to do that as a group. We absolutely need it. It is essential to our existence. It is good to be together in small groups, in home groups, in Sunday school class, in church services and all those things. But note well, those things can never substitute for a lack of personal worship. It all indeed revolves around personal worship. And so if we are going to, again, be alert in the sense that Jesus talks about here, it must revolve around an intentional scheduled time of personal worship. I have listed a question on your outline. It is, a, I think, a very important searching question for every one of us to consider. And since it's about something personal, no one can answer it on behalf of another individual. It is something for you and for you alone prayerfully to consider before your Father. And it is this question, do I intentionally have a scheduled time and place for personal worship? You've got to be honest with that, because this is between you and the Lord. It's not between us. It's between Him. And so I challenge you, and I encourage you to think about that question this morning. Do I intentionally have a scheduled time and place for personal worship? Because, again, let's not kid ourselves. If we do not have that individually, we honestly are not on the alert in the sense that Jesus talks about here. It's a personal thing. We have to individually be on the alert, and I am fully convinced this is the only way to truly be on the alert. Personal worship is a subject way too big to talk about in just a few moments on Sunday morning. I am convinced and I am convicted that we as a body of believers need some intensive times of study 
and discussion on this subject in order to really come to terms with what it's about and to best incorporate it into our lives. The best I can share with you are a few fundamentals to get us started this morning because I want to share these things in thinking that, you know, when we talk about personal worship, I may not have any idea just exactly what that is. And so in the clearest terms possible, I'd like to share with you what I believe personal worship really is. There's a lot of different ways to go about it, a lot of different things that can be incorporated. So again, these are a few things that can be part of your personal worship. I believe I've listed them on your outline. The first one I want to mention is journaling. And uh, that is something I used to do a lot in previous years. I don't do it so much anymore, so I've got to be honest about that. I don't uh, make that much of a part of my practice of personal worship. But it is something that can be very, very rich and meaningful, depending on where you are in your life. But basically, journaling is as simple as this. Take a passage of Scripture to read on a daily basis. And as a church, we've got a daily Bible reading plan, Monday through Friday. You can begin with that. But it is as simple as that, taking one chapter a day and reading through that chapter, getting a notebook, and after you have read that chapter, write out what you think it means to you. What did that chapter say to you as you read it? And what do you think that chapter really means to you and to your life? And you can then begin to write down some things about your own personal experiences. This is a struggle I am going through in my life right now. Write that down. This is a special joy I'm experiencing in my life right now. So write down your joys, your fears, whatever's going on in your life, what's happening with you spiritually. Journaling involves writing down those things. Men, if you've ever heard of a man by the name of John Eldridge... He's written several books. I, I encourage, uh, I don't agree with everything he's written, of course, but uh, there's some good things there about one's uh, personal life. Uh, his books really flow out of his personal journaling. He's written a book entitled The Journey of Desire, The Sacred Romance, a number of others. But men, those books especially appeal to us. Again, a man journaling and writing down the things he's experiencing, and, uh, and you can read those things and get some ideas about your own journaling as well. I was thinking about Marcia Crockett's book that she wrote recently called Breakthrough. And I know for a fact that book came about through her personal journaling. And uh, that's a wonderful thing to be able to share that with others so that they might grow in journaling and grow in their experience as well. So uh, there are books you can read that will help you if you don't understand what that's all about. But that's just one of those things that can be part of your personal worship is a notebook and simply write down those things from your scripture reading and your own personal experience. Here's another suggestion, especially if you spend much time behind the wheel on your way to work. Your morning commute can be a rich time of personal worship. Let me immediately qualify that and say if you're going to worship while you drive, do it with your eyes open. There's enough hazards out there with texting and, and uh, cell phones anyway. So if you're going to commune with the Lord, do so with your eyes open. But uh, I know a number of people have testified that that's a rich time of personal worship, driving along and having conversation with God. That can be done. Here's another thing you can consider in your personal worship, and that is a, a one-day or a half-day or even less spiritual retreat. And that's the time to just get away from it all. Take your Bible, take a notebook, get into a quiet place, go someplace that's especially conducive for communion with your Father and just be in His presence. Read Scripture, pray, journal, write those things down. But that's something that can enrich your personal time. Another suggestion in terms of personal worship is simply to plan a time of silence. You know how hard that is to do in this day and age? You know, when I schedule times to be silent, it's usually not. 
because there's so much noise in my brain, there's so much noise in the world, I think it takes a tremendous amount of time to just wind down enough to be able to be quiet. But I think that's an important thing because after all, God says, be still and know that I'm God. And so there's something very recreative about silent times. You know, when you think about communion with God and you think about prayer, usually it involves the prayer list and rushing in and saying, God, I got five minutes, I got ten minutes, I got fifteen minutes, whatever, and saying, here's my list, here's stuff I need you to do. And often that's what personal worship is. It is bringing our, my, our want list before the Lord and saying, I got to quick get rid of this and bring it before you tonight and get about my busy life. What about a time of silence where you just simply come before the Lord, no agenda, just to be in His presence to love Him and let Him love you? I think there's something very powerful in that. It is extremely difficult to do. Maybe one of the hardest things to do with the noise of our world, but so vital in our personal worship. So that's just one more thing to think about in terms of a time of personal worship. Again, there is, there is so much more to say and to explore on the subject. But again, I'm just convinced this is something vitally important for each one of us. It is a great burden on my heart. And especially as I consider these words this morning from Jesus about watching and being on the alert, it is largely the practice and the habit of personal times of worship for that to take place. I believe literally everything else flows from personal worship, and I've come to see it as that important. Uh, everything in our life and everything in the corporate life of our church flows from your personal worship. Your service, our service, flows from that. Our group worship, what we do on Sunday, flows out of your personal worship time. Your effectiveness, our effectiveness in prayer, flows from that. Our outreach, making disciples, flows from your personal worship. Compassion and love, those things all flow out of personal worship. And so literally, the fruit that we are called to bear... That fruit comes forth out of personal worship. I believe it is that important. And again, I think that's the direct application and connection with being watchful and being on the alert as Jesus talks about it here. It is not easy to do. Even as I talk about personal worship, it doesn't happen easy for me. I schedule daily times for personal worship, and I'd love to tell you that, that, that I feel the finger of God touch me every time it happens. That I feel God that close. You know, it doesn't. There's a lot of times I walk away and say, God, did I even begin to hear you? Did I even begin to clear the noise away to have a breakthrough moment? You know, it doesn't happen. It, it's a struggle. There's times I'd, I'd like to just say, forget it. God, I'm not sure you're there. I'm not sure I'm there. Let, let's forget it. It's the easiest thing in the world is to be discouraged and to give up on the practice. But it is something we do in faith. It is a discipline that we say, even if I don't feel that something really happened, I will do this. Because there are those moments when God breaks through. And there have been some significant moments in my times where I felt like God and I were face to face. I felt like He was right there loving me and speaking to me and encouraging me. And you know, I live through those other times for those moments, even if they are rare. I live for those moments. And I know others who are in the habit of personal worship can say the same thing. Yeah, it's not always rich and rewarding, but those times when there's been a breakthrough, it makes it all worthwhile. The breakthroughs will not come if we don't have the daily discipline to wait upon the Lord for those things to take place. Again, I cannot tell you how much I want those things for each of you in terms of personal worship because I'm convinced it's the wellspring of everything else and ultimately the way that we watch and that we are alert 
as Jesus wants us to be. I was thinking about Jesus teaching the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You know, the way we do that is through the thing we're talking about here, personal worship. How do I really love the Lord? I spend time with Him. How do you love people? That, how do you, you know, people that you love, you spend time with them. Uh, you know, the, the time spent is essential in order to convey that and express that love, and so it is with our Creator. If we love Him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then the way that we really do that, the way we cultivate it even more, is we just got to spend time together. It's a personal thing. No one can do it for you. It's something that must be done by each one of us. Again, I deeply desire this for each of us, and I anticipate us talking and sharing much more about it.